And here we go. Time once again for Ira on Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and we have a great show on tap for you tonight because football is back. We've got so much to discuss, Ira. Ira, we always disclose that this show is not live. We pre-taped it earlier on, on Monday. We always have a great reason for that, though. What are you up to tonight? Well, I'm going to be going to the Bills-Jets game, first game of Monday Night Football, first game of Aaron Rodgers, the Aaron Rodgers Air, and uh, starts tonight, and we're going to see what happens. And this is what, I mean, there is just so much excitement in the air, especially Jet fans saw what happened to the Giants last night <laughs> at the same arena. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> the same stadium. They're gonna, it's two nights in a row. You got the same stadium. So the Giants bubble is deflated, and now we'll see what happens with the Jets. If they suffer the same uh, uh, same result, then we're gonna. The city is gonna be very sad with Yankees, Mets, Giants, and Jets. Because right now we have Yankees and Mets out of the playoffs, and the Giants don't look too good. So we'll see what happens. And then uh, about 7.35, GM Michael Lombardi is going to come on. He's a fantastic uh, football mind, and we're going to get to talk with him. Yeah, he wrote a book called Football Done Right. It just came out. He was the personal uh, director, per player, personnel director, or general manager of Cleveland, Philadelphia, Oakland, Denver, New England. He's worked with Bill Walsh, Bill Belichick, Al Davis. Great, great mind. Totally respected the NFL. Amazing book, and I'm glad to have him on the show. You can, fo- you can follow Ira anywhere at Ira on sports across social media. Ira, this has been one of your busiest weeks, I think, ever. What have you been up to? Tennis, about 120 hours. I've been since Monday to last night. I was at the Open every day, but Sunday and Wednesday. Wednesday for the fantasy draft, and Sunday I went to my see my friend if he didn't divorce. But sort of that, I was there the whole time. I love the U.S. Open. It's one of my favorite things to go to. Uh, so I can't wait to tar- talk about Novak Djokovic and Coco Goff's historic wins at the U.S. Open this past week. Yeah, this has been a, a busy week uh, for you. Busy week for sports fans. Let's get into it now. Um, first and foremost, Ira, like I said, 95% of week one NFL games are completed. And to me, a lot of sloppy games. It wasn't the, the best football I've ever seen by any means. Yeah, I mean, you want to start with that first game, which is destroyed in Kansas City. Uh, everyone every year is like, oh, Kansas City's fine. Anybody can be a wide receiver. Just put, you know, Mike Balsama can go on and be the wide receiver. Kansas City's going to win. They lose Tyreek Hill. Doesn't matter. They win the Super Bowl. Maybe, maybe it's finally caught up to them because receivers were dropping balls everywhere from Mahomes. It was just a disaster for the Chiefs. They lose to the Lions. Um, even when the Lions were turning around the clock at the end of the game, they gave the Chiefs back the ball down one with 2.30 left. Oh, that's, that's easy. Mahomes, 2.30, he doesn't need, you know, he needs two seconds. And again, Kadarius Tony drops a ball. Uh, Sky Moore drops a pass. Everything was a bad, and this was one of this was a scary game for a, as if you're a Chiefs fan. Mahomes was 21 for 39, just two touchdowns, interceptions, just 200 yards. But if they're not, they're not, they never have a running game. But if they can't get this passing game because these receivers aren't catching, uh, they're not going to win the Super Bowl again this year. You know, I do want to give a little credit where it's due, though. Nice win for Detroit. I mean, no, nobody picks you to win this game. Came in, did what you had to do. Granted, there was a lot of sloppiness. The uh, Mahomes interception was right off Tony's hands. Things like that you, you can't control. But congratulations to Detroit. J- Jerry Goff looked decent. Not great, but looked decent. I was surprised they didn't use Jameer Gibbs very often. You know, rookie, they just took him in the first round. You thought he'd be involved a lot. I think he had seven touches. So that kind of surprised me, but I'm still happy for Detroit. Yeah, big win for Detroit after what happened last year. You know, they saw the last week of the season they put with, with nothing on the line. They fought hard against Green Bay. They come back under Dan Campbell. And they've just been, you know, like three years ago, they're the worst team in the league. And they just keep improving and improving. It's a big first week win for them. I know you're not like huge on social media and stuff like that, following athletes. And Kadarius Tony deleted his Instagram and Twitter after the game. He reactivated it after the Giants lost to 
talk uh, to talk bad about the Giants. So it goes to show what kind of dude he is. Let's talk your boys, the Pittsburgh Steelers. You thought they looked great, you know, in, in the preseason, and they did. And then you sent me a text yesterday <laughs> along the lines of, maybe I shouldn't have been, uh, you know, scheming against third-string defenses because that's, that's who we were playing the all preseason because San Francisco just had their foot on the gas from, from the opening minute. It was it was a scary game for this as a Steelers fan. Uh, the first half it was twenty to nothing. The Steelers at one point had zero yards. San Francisco had like hundred and fifty. The Steelers had no first downs the entire half, and it wasn't they weren't getting first downs. They were getting tackled. The San Francisco defense was just swarming. It, it almost looked like one of those high school games where a quad A team was playing a single A team. Um, for the game, San Francisco ran they ran almost the same amount of plays. San Francisco averaged like six yards a play. The Steelers averaged like three and a half yards a play. The Steelers only they had the ball eleven drives. They only scored on one of them. <laughs> and uh, the Niners had almost 200 yards rushing. The Steelers didn't rush the ball, only 41. Um, Christian McCafferty was just running all over the Steelers. And the concerning thing for the Steelers is Kenny Pickett looked awful. He just was missing receivers that were open, and the receivers were dropping when they were open. He had five sacks. He had two interceptions. They were awful. Uh, just terrible performance from the Steelers from a team that looked yeah, tremendous in the preseason against Buffalo and against Atlanta. Uh, this game on paper, when I mean, you look at the stats, it been like 60 to nothing, and it looked like that. It was a terrible, terrible performance. And if you're a San Francisco fan, you're like, well, this is what we were going to, we were going to win the Super Bowl last year. If Brock Purdy stays, uh, you know, healthy and he's able, if Purdy's able to stay healthy and, and, and they beat Philadelphia and then they beat Kansas city and they're defending champions. So, uh, but Purdy's performance was just tremendous. Uh, very accurate throwing, making that the touchdown pass to Ayuk uh, was just perfect. Like a Tom Brady level type pass, but San Francisco looks like they're rolling and the Steelers, I don't know what happened, but it's only one game, but they look terrible. And that's a big takeaway for me though, is how, competent Brock Purdy looked coming off surgery. This wasn't the the Detroit Lions defense. This was the, the Steelers defense. This is a real defense and that you you couldn't stop San Francisco. What are bad teams going to look like against this San Francisco team? I, I know we're going to talk about Dallas in a second and people are loving them right now, but to me, San Francisco is hands down the best team in the NFC and it's not close. It looks like that, considering how Philadelphia looked in their game. And if you're a San Francisco fan, yeah, it clearly right now you're looking at that. And they have every weapon. Like, people are watching the game. It's like, well, okay, well, we, we stopped them on the fourth down. We'll just run Kittles. And Shanahan, with his ability to just move everything with McCaffrey, brings Elijah Mitchell in, Ayuk, Debo Samuel. They have so many players on offense. And then Purdy is this magician running it. And then on defense, they're totally loaded. They're like, how are they, how are they ever going to lose? I mean, I'm not going to say they go 17-0. But if, if you're seeing if that Purdy would have stayed healthy and they would have gone and played Philadelphia, they probably would have won that game, and they would have probably beat Kansas City. So uh, they have a lot of fire. They have a lot to prove this year, and they're playing like that for our first game. This is Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, former NFL GM Mike Lombardi, joins us at 735. So Iron, I want to tell you a little story. In 2012, I flew to Atlanta and watched the Giants take on the Atlanta Falcons, and the Giants lost 34 to nothing. Really a waste of a trip. Last night's game versus the Cowboys was so much worse than that. I, I don't know how to even put into terms what happened, but it was the most disgusting performance I've ever seen a New York football team or football team in general put on as Dallas just absolutely crushed the Giants 40 nothing. So I was at the tennis yesterday. I come back. I met my one friend at one of this bar on the Upper East Side. I get into there like probably at the end of the first quarter, and I can't see. It's in one of those screens where you can't see what the score is. And you're like, then you sort of see it, and you're like, 
what's this 26 nothing like this is crazy it was and then the second half was an embarrassment and why they kept Daniel Jones in I have no idea but the halftime shutout margin of 26 nothing was the fourth most lopsided week one for a home team topped only by the Bucks trailing by the Eagles in 1988 and the other was a game in 1954 Um, it was the Cowboys biggest shutout ever Um, the Giants only managed 170 yards for the whole game they averaged two yards of play with three turnovers they they couldn't even kick a field goal uh, complete with all the optimists about J.J. Jones, Saquon Barkley, everything to come out there. Uh, Brian Dable, this great coach, they were just not ready to play that game, and they had trouble last year against the Cowboys. The the, the knock on the Giants is that they beat the bad teams, they beat the Vikings, but they can't beat the good teams. But this year, they're going to beat the good teams, and the Cowboys come in and beat them for forty nothing. Amazing. One takeaway for me though, like I keep hearing the national media blast Daniel Jones today. You know, he's overpaid, and he might be overpaid. That loss is not on Daniel Jones. He had no time ever. You, that could have been Patrick Mahomes with Jerry Rice and Art Monk as his receivers. It doesn't matter. You're getting crushed. Every play, they were folding the right tackle, Evan Neal, over. Andrew Thomas, who was great last year, terrible at the other tackle. They were in his face constantly. I agree they shouldn't have left him in that long, but I think it was more of Dable trying to say, let's just score anything to not walk out of here shut out. Regardless, terrible performance. And I mean, I guess there's only up to go from here, but that's not good uh, for week one. Pretty good for the Miami Dolphins, though. I mean, this was... I said there was a lot of sloppy games, and there was. The best game of the day, just seeing pure technical ability, was definitely the Dolphins and the Chargers. Dolphins got a huge win. The Dolphins had a huge win. They, they just looked like they had the beginning part of the year. I mean, the Dolphins, I think, are probably the best now. Looks like September, October team in football. They would win the Super Bowl because they, this is how they looked before Tua had his injuries. And he came back from Tua, came back, and they didn't look well. And he had trouble. And, they, you know, the Packer game was average. But throwing for almost 500 yards, three touchdowns, Tyreek Kill, 11 catches, 215 yards, two touchdowns. Uh, the only negative about this game is, I really thought the Dolphins' defense would step up more. And Vince Fangino bringing the defense at Chargers ran for almost 250 yards on them. And each team had 30 first downs. So it was like one of those things where I got to give credit. Now, at the end, they made the play. They did the stop to win the game. And, and of course, I think Brandon Staley, the coach of the Chargers, is absolutely horrendous. So for McDonald to beat him is not so the feather in his cap. But a big win to go into Los Angeles, win this type of game. Offense look like it's rolling. But I was expecting more from the defense. I, 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 the 34 points is scary. I thought thought this Dolphins defense was going to be much more improved than they were last year. I was going to bring up uh, Staley if you didn't. At what point is this guy going to lose his job? Like it, It's kind of crazy now. He's a defensive-minded coach. He's got the most expensive defense in the league, got one of the best young talents at quarterback, and they lose all the time. And this is letting up massive amounts of points and yards when you're supposed to be a defensive coach with the best, de- with the most expensive defense. I, I don't know if he makes it through the season. I, I, don't, I don't know if they're going to want to fire in midseason, but I would, I'd be done with him by now. <laughs> and it would be one of the prime spots that any coach would want in to have a, a quarterback like Herbert. But I was there at the game against in Jacksonville last year when they had that huge lead that they blew to, to Jacksonville. So clearly this is this was game was, but it's good from, from Miami's perspective, tremendous win. Their offense is rolling. There was a concern and, and two, it looked fantastic, but and he had zero sacks. So the question is, keep him zero sacks. Don't get any injuries because my concern, that's why I didn't draft him in fantasy, is like one big heavy hit. Like you saw Pickett. Kenny Pickett got hit hard yesterday. Like he got hit really hard. If Tua got hit that hard, I think they would say, oh, concussion protocol. So I think the concern is don't get him hit at all because otherwise that there could be a concussion protocol with Tua. Oh, if Tua was a giant last night, his career would be over. <laughs> that's how that looked. Philly and New England. And this was one where Philly won the game 25-20 over the Patriots. They didn't look great. New England had chances to win this game. Mac Jones actually had the best um, best statistical day or best QB rating uh, of day one against what's supposed to be a great Philly defense. I kind of 
expected this one a little bit, though, with Philly losing both their coordinators and people not maybe realizing that New England was the best statistical defense last year going against, you know, a great statistical offense. But Philly did what they had to do to get the win. Yeah, but I did not like that boy. This is hurt. This was Jalen Hurts' worst game. You people expected to build off last year. You don't have a game like this where you're just horrendous uh, in terms of throwing. It was just an awful performance from his perspective. And then they're leading twenty five. It was twenty five fourteen Eagles. Then it was twenty five twenty. They went for two. And then Hurts gets the ball back with like three minutes left in the game, and he fumbles the ball, <laughs> gives New England another chance to score, and then Eagles get another chance to go. Let's run the clock with a lead, and again they still can't. They go three on at three and out. So I mean they were lucky to defense of course Philly's defense is pretty great that's why they're able to sit but I think Hertz's performance was just about 170 yards um just was not was not good interceptions for you know it's just bad and as someone who drafted in fantasy I'm, I'm upset but to be outgained by New England almost uh one and a half to one uh bad performance of the Eagles and whether you call this a Super Bowl loss hangover or however you want to say it but they they didn't come out to play well and their offense better with with A.J. Brown and Devontae Smith they have got to do better on offense in order if this, if this is what they're missing so much of coordinators, uh, they're going to have a tough season, but that, as we said earlier, this is why San Francisco should feel confident. I know it's a long season, but Philly looked, I thought they looked terrible. This is Ira on sports, truly channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Follow Ira across social media at Ira on sports. So another quick story. My wife watches me do all this fantasy and she thinks it's crazy how, how deep we get into it, but she says she wants to join my survivor pool this year. And people know how that works. You just have to pick a team to win every week. She loves Joe Burrow. She took Cincinnati, Ira. And <laughs> I told her from the beginning, this is a risky pick, but it ended up not even being risky. It was just downright terrible. I, I, Cincinnati, I don't know. I, I get that Joe Burrow was hurt, but this did not look like a team that we expect to go to the AFC championship game. And Cleveland didn't look great either. And they still managed to absolutely crush them. Well, now the two most recent Super Bowl losing teams, Cincinnati, uh, of course, two years ago lost. I mean, this to the Rams, they were horrendous. Uh, Burrow was 14 for 31 for 82 yards passing. Uh, T, how about this? T. Higgins, who I know in fantasy, everybody, he's a second-best wide receiver to the Bengals. He had eight targets, zero catches. Zero catches for a player who people accept as like one of the top ten wide receivers in the league. Uh, Jamar Chase only had 39 yards on five catches. Um, the Bengals punted 10 times in 14 possessions. They spent. They have the most expensive offensive line in football, and they were awful. Uh, Burrow was, was getting chased all, all over the place. They were only two for 15 on third down. And Cleveland, Deshaun Watson didn't play well now the weather was terrible but they still crushed him 24 to 3 they did what he had to do so i'm not saying i can't can't criticize Deshaun watson when he wins the game 24 to 3 yeah i can't criticize Cincinnati because it's a team that a lot of people pick to go to the super bowl so these teams like you know if you're looking at uh, philadelphia and cincinnati you're just saying these teams are going to the super bowl and you lose a game 24 to 3 that's pretty scary for, if you're a bengal fan so a lot of people coming into the seasons thinking tampa bay is tanking they're going to be one of the worst teams in the league a lot of people coming in saying Minnesota is not as good as their record was last year. And sometimes, you know, you can be right about one thing and not about the other. I don't know if Tampa's good, Ira. They got a win over Minnesota. Minnesota looked like they could win this game a lot of times, never actually just took the throttle and did it. And they're, they're going to start off 0-1. Well, a lot of people talk about one-score games. Last year, the Vikings were a, a ridiculous 11-0 and zero on one-score games. They didn't lose. They won every one-score game. This time, they were down 20-17. to 17. They had two chances to win the game. They did it. They lost. So, a team, people say, well, the Vikings got lucky last year, so this year, they're getting a little unlucky. Uh, but uh, Baker Mayfield did what he had to do. Two touchdowns, zero interceptions, just one sack, um, sort of redemption tour for Tampa Bay. No one's, I think people are going to be overlooking Tampa Bay all year, but they do have seven starters back from the defense in 2020 that won the Super Bowl. So, there is that. There's still talent 
talent there. It's not, just, just because Brady's not there doesn't mean they have nobody. But I think that that was it's, look. That's a big win to go into Minnesota and win that for Tampa Bay. And in that type of in that division we talked about before, that it's going to be like a 500 record is going to get you in the playoffs if you win that division. So uh, in the NFC South, so it was a good win for them. That one of their I guess seven or eight wins they could have on the year to still make the playoffs. AFC South matchup here with Jacksonville and Indy, and I'm on record on this show saying two things. One, that I thought the Titans were still the team to beat in the AFC South after yesterday. Probably don't don't really know if I agree with that anymore. But I really didn't buy Anthony Richardson. I just didn't. Somebody who can't, can't complete 50% of his passes in college, I can't buy into that in the NFL. He looked pretty good for, for a lot of this game. And the, it was closer than the 31-21 score indicates. Of all the rookie quarterbacks, I mean, he looked he looked great. I mean, it was not great, but again, Indianapolis is just this is a building season. They're not looking that I think, and I question: Do you put Richardson in there? Is this going to be? But he seems comfortable. That was really surprised with that. Uh, Jacksonville did have a win. I mean, we talked about Tank Bixby. He fumbles the ball, then he scores the big touchdown. Calvin Ridley. So, do you about Calvin Ridley? He played for the Falcons in the middle two years ago. He said he needed a mental health break. In the middle of October, he says, "I'm done. I'm off the team." Then last year, he was suspended for gambling, which is ridiculous. as gambling a few hundred bucks on a game. They spent him for a whole season. He comes back, and he catches eight passes for 101 yards for Trevor Lawrence. So I like the fact from a Jacksonville perspective, they got a backup running back to Travis Etienne, which is great. They also now have with, uh, more a, a superstar wide receiver in Calvin Ridley, and Lawrence just keeps getting better year after year. Big win for Doug Peterson and big win for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And then going to the NFC South, Atlanta and Carolina. And this was a game where it's like, okay, rookie versus guy we haven't seen very much in Desmond Ritter. We know that the Falcons can run the ball. And that's what they did, and they they were effective at it. And I, I don't think Atlanta's a playoff team, but they can move the ball. Yeah, I was disappointed. I don't think Bryce Young could be happy with that game. He was twenty for forty, just one hundred forty-six yards, two bad interceptions. Um, they were he's the last fifteen quarterbacks that have been drafted for the first with the first pick are now 0-14 and one in their first starts. But a poor look. He's going to have a long career. He'll be great. All this other stuff they talk about him, but it was not a good game for them. I think from Atlanta's perspective, is like boy, again, this is one of these quarterbacks like Desmond Ritter, Kenny Pickett. Some of these quarterbacks are like waiting for to have this great game. Everybody heard so much how great the Falcons were on offense, and didn't see that explosive offense. Offense and and that's a concern because they're going to have to score some points. But um, I, just, I mentioned the game because it was a weird type of game in terms of the Falcons uh, being able to win, but just not look good. So one one of the we we talked about a month ago. We just did our picks on over unders. One thing you and I were very confident on was the Vikings over, and I'm still confident on it after you know a loss yesterday. But I think we both loved the Bears under seven and a half, meaning the Bears would need to get to eight wins, five more than last year. And it's looking like, how did this team really get better? Where's these five wins coming from? And that was on display yesterday. I don't know if Jordan Love's going to be great. I don't know if he's going to be good, but the Chicago defense was just terrible. And it's hard to get a read on this team because you can't, you can't get uh, gauge the offense at all because the defense is so bad, letting up points constantly. Green Bay rolled them. Yeah, well, the two takeaways are this: Jordan Love, after all this, Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers, Jordan Love looks like I look. He he. The wide receivers on this team are very young. He seems to click with them. You don't have all the drama with Aaron Rodgers, so Aaron Rodgers is perfect for the Jets, perfect for the limelight. I think Jordan Love is perfect for Green Bay. Now, Green Bay is amazing. They were twenty-five and five against Chicago with Rodgers. They were twenty-two and ten when Favre started. So they, you know, when Rodgers said, "I own them," he, he does own them to some extent. I mean, they have Green Bay, the team does, uh, and Justin Fields. 
the question is, it seems like there's no offense. It's like just hand the ball and run around. It's like a high school. He's like a high school quarterback out there. I'm not saying he. I mean, he threw 200 yards, uh, threw an interception. It's just just an awful performance in terms of what the Bears have. But again, we talked about going the season. I think the confidence. I mean, the Bears fans and the Giants fans, two teams that they're like, okay, we're going to step, make that big step this year, and it's just a bad game for them. And that's what stands out to me. That's a great analogy. It looks like a high school team that has a really good quarterback and there's really no plan. Just give him the ball, let him try to win the game. It's not going to work in the NFL. And and that like, it, it was almost like deer in the headlights that, that offense at times. And you know, while the defense is just getting blown up on the other side of the ball, I don't know. Ira, I, I don't know if they get to four wins this year, let alone the eight that we were talking about to start the season. It, it was just like almost embarrassing that they look so clueless on offense. All right, Ira, what's coming up next week? Well, Thursday night's game, exciting. Minnesota at Philadelphia. I think that's going to be a great, you know, these teams have played before and they're, they've had some great games. I remember a couple of Thursday and Monday night games. And then on Sunday, I think a must, a great Baltimore won their first wing week over Houston. Uh, but Baltimore at Cincinnati, you know, Cincinnati Bengals, you don't go, go down 0-2. And Kansas City is at Jacksonville. Kansas City doesn't want to go down 0-2 on the year. And San Francisco is at the Rams. That's a big game. And then, boy, 4 o'clock on CBS, the New York Jets at Dallas Cowboys. Think if the Jets win this game with Aaron Rodgers, they're going to go at Dallas, you know, Sunday at 4 o'clock. And then uh, the night game is Miami at New England. So we got those, like, those late games next Sunday, Jets at Dallas and Miami, New England on NBC, I think, two major games. Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Mike Lombardi, former NFL GM, joins us at 7:35. Ira, you were at the U.S. Open more than the, some of the tennis players <laughs> this past past couple of days, plus week plus. Tell us about what you saw. Everything was was phenomenal from the pictures you can see on Iron Sports. Tell us about your experience. Well. I- Everyone's asking what the strategy. First of all, I'm going to say another plug out to Benjamin Steakhouse. It is, to me, the coolest place that you can go to an event and, 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 and actually have a really good meal and a place that's sort of like a home base where you can say meet someone there. And there's a bar, and there's a restaurant, and they only run it you know, that two weeks. And they put their entire staff there, and you can see the line out the door, and they run it. It's like you're getting great food faster than like Chick-fil-A because I cannot believe how they can service so many people in such a short period of time. People are like, I paid a million dollars for these tickets. I got to go and eat and come back out. So I got to get Benjamin's, and that was a big help to having Benjamin's there to be able to go into, get some food, and come back out. So I really like that aspect of it. The first four days, this strategy you have to do. You have to follow the strategy first four days. Do not go into Arthur Ashe Stadium. Stay, buy a ticket to the grandstand because I was able to watch amazing matches. I saw the number four seed room the number five seed Root, the number seven seed Sinner, the number five seed FAA, number 16 Nori, and number 30 seed Eubanks all lose, all big upsets the first couple days outside on the outside courts. And I'm only a few seats away. Like you go to a high school tennis match, you're not sitting as close as I sat to watch all those matches. And you pay like a hundred bucks to go and sit outside. Don't spend the money the first four days to see Djokovic win one, 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 or Akaraz win one, one. Stay out there. Now, I was lucky. On Friday, clients took me to Ash and I saw games there. And then on Saturday, I went I still would say Saturday and Sunday, still go to the outside courts, watch some good things. Now, on Monday, the key was to, then I started buying tickets in Ashton. There's ways to do. You want to buy the day ticket, not the night ticket. The day tickets are a lot cheaper. But guess what? The matches sometimes are much better in the day. I saw Carlos Alcaraz play against Mateo on last Monday, and then at night I stayed for Sasha match. Tuesday, I bought the day ticket for to see Djokovic versus Fritz. So Fritz, the best American, young American, Djokovic, I saw for a day ticket. And then at night, a lot of people, what happens is they end up leaving. You can 
move around. It's easier. I mean, people don't sit in their seats. It's not like going to a game. It's, you're there forever. They go for the women's matches if they start at 7. And I saw Shelton, TFO, and then Wednesday I wasn't there. But Thursday, it's like one ticket. You go for the women's semifinals. Friday was, Friday was great. I was able to buy that one ticket. Now, Saturday and Sunday, I had to sit upstairs, but it's not horrendous. I do like sitting down low. But I'm just saying, as you go to the Open, you can really be economical in terms of those first four days. You've seen tons of tennis. And it's just late last week of August. Nobody's working that anyway. Just go those first four days and really enjoy yourself and see a lot of great players that have great seats during that time. Ira on Sports, Truel the Channel, and Mike Balsamo. You can see the pictures at Ira on Sports across social media. Uh, what next? Well, no, I was just going to say in terms of the – I was going to run through what I, the matches I saw. Like on Monday – Alcaraz over Mateo, which we talked about on the show, the fact that I was, my friend is a friend with Mateo, so I was sort of behind the player's box at rooting, that was fun. And then my other match on Monday that night, after we did our show, was Sasha Zera, one of five steps over Yannick Sinner. Sinner from Italy, number six seed in the, in the tournament, and he's someone who every, it's almost every tournament thinks Sinner's going to break through, he's going to win. He's tall, he's a great serve, runs over, it's just active, but he is bad loss for Sasha Zera. Sasha had lost in the French Open uh, two years ago to Nadal when he got injured and had been recovering from this. He, like, broke his ankle. And this was a huge win for him to come back. And both of them, both players were cramping and tired and whatever. Went five sets till like, 2 or 3 in the morning. I was, like, the last person there watching it. So that was exciting. But then on Tuesday to see Djokovic and Fritz, I was so pumped for this match because Taylor Fritz is someone who's like, he's, he's a ninth seed. This is his chance for the Americans to win this tournament. No Americans won Andy Roddick like 20 some years ago. So I was excited for that. And Djokovic just destroyed him. 6-1, 6-4, 6-4. He came ready to play, came ready to dominate. But then Tuesday night, match of the tournament for me. I had never seen Ben Shelton play in person. I've seen him on TV. He's 6-4. He's 20 years old. He is Bo Jackson. He's Giannis. He is all what I want to say is he is the strongest player. He serves the ball almost 150 miles an hour. Um, and he is the most fastest player in the court with the fastest foot, the first step. And he's the most powerful player. So that's what I want to say about Bo Jackson. Bo Jackson, when he was a running back, was the, you could tackle him. He was the strongest running back, but he was the fastest player on the field at the same time. He has such an athletic ability over everybody else advantage. It's amazing to see him play. And he's so fun. So he's smiling. And I sat behind the players' walk with his family. And his family did not push him into tennis. His dad is the coach at Georgia Tech. His dad was the coach at Florida University. His mom played tennis, top junior tennis player. His dad played in the Open. His uncle played in the Open. But they said, play football, play other sports. So he's been playing for a few years. And here he is now in the, in, you know, just started to play. I mean, his growth. He's someone who I'm telling you, I saw Michael Jordan play the first time. And I'm saying he's Michael Jordan, whatever. But the fact is, when I walked into the Madison Square Garden, when I was, I don't know how many years ago, first time I walked in there and I saw Jordan and saw everybody else, you're like, there's one player who's so much more athletically gifted than everyone else on the court. And that's what Shelton was. When you watch all those players, I watched hundreds of hours. He is so much more athletically gifted. He can get every, you cannot pass him at the net. You keep goes from side to side. He's so fast. You can't drop shot him. He's, his game is going to come together. And I was just impressed. He plays TFO, who plays that same way, who's the other great young American. And he won 6-2 and four sets. And the third set, it was 7-6. It was TFO served for the set, served 130-hour serve. And Shelton just returned it for a winner. I could not believe that shot. And uh, they ended up winning the four set, 6-2. I feel terrible for TFO. He's been on show twice. I love him. But it was, a, it was a match that Shelton just raised the attention. The fans were going nuts. I really, really enjoyed it. It was, it was a great thing. And then Wednesday's matches, uh, Medvedev, who we saw in the finals, beat Rublev, another Russian, easily. And Alcaraz beat Sasha Zara, who was exhausted from uh, the match that he played the night before on that. And then on Thursday was the women's semifinals. And 
that was the key for that was to see Coco and see how well she did uh, against Carolina Choba. So she, she won. And the, the weird thing about that match is someone protested during the match. They uh, glued their feet down and they stopped the match for 45 minutes because they couldn't take these people with their feet glued down in the stands. They were screaming. But Coco, I give her a lot of credit, was able to you know, not be distracted, stay on a win there. And then the, the night match was just absolutely amazing. Um, Sabalenka beat Keys, Madison Keys of America, the 17th seed. Sabalenka is now the number one player in the world. But Keys was up 5-3 in the second serve, serving. Had the entire match. We're going to have a Keys-Coco final. And, uh, uh, and Sabalenka was able to come back, win that set, and then win the third set. Sabalenka was crazy. In the middle of the points, she's yelling at her coach, screaming at her box. She, at one point, she threw her racket in the stands. They threw her another racket in the middle of a game. Like, I've never saw that before. But uh, it was exciting full of energy. Both players hit the ball super hard. So really that's set up for, for Friday semifinals and, of course, the, uh, the finals on Saturday and Sunday. It's Iron Sports, Trulli Channel, less than 10 minutes from now. Former NFL GM Michael Lombardi joins us. So let's get into the semis here, Ira. And this was a situation where someone who knows this like you really enjoys the storylines of the matches you're going to see. Totally Djokovic for Shelton. And I'm getting criticized. From I've sent out emails. People say, oh, you're overselling Shelton. I don't. I, I think Shelton will be better than Alcaraz. I've never seen talent. This guy played number five at Florida two years ago. He's just improving and improving and improving. Djokovic played him, and Djokovic came ready for this. I think Djokovic saw the power that Shelton brings. And this reminded me of 2001 when Federer played Sampras. They only met one time. So Federer had 14 titles. So, I mean, Sampras had uh, 14 titles. So Federer was just starting his career out. And Federer won at Wimbledon in five sets. Now, I think Djokovic remembers that match because he was thinking that. I don't want Shelton to have this big victory just now. You know, I want to win this. And Djokovic played the best match. I think best he's played all tournament was that match. It was six three, six two, cruising in the third set. It was like four. It was four four in the four. It was four three in the in the uh, in the uh, third set. He is up a break, and suddenly Shelton just woke up, and and it was crazy, hitting shot after shot, serving. I don't know what motivated him or whatever, but those last few games they started breaking each other. Shelton had set point to fourth of fourth a fourth set, and remember two years ago Djokovic lost in the finals to Medvedev because he was too tired. He had overplayed and, and was exhausted by playing Sasha Zareb in the semifinals. So he went to get this match over with, and that final tiebreaker in the final games was super great, and I just loved seeing the battle between Shelton Joker and watching him saying, Joker, I'm like, I don't know if I could ever, I have to look at the last time I beat Shelton because Shelton keeps improving, but that was exciting. And then at the end, and then Friday night, as much as Joker was ready for Shelton, I think that Carlos Alcaraz overlooked Medvedev. He's like, how do you overlook Medvedev? He's the third seed. He won the tournament two years ago um, because he beat him at Wimbledon easily three three and three a few months ago he beat him at indian wells which is another hardcore easily so he said look i easily beat this person i'm, I'm you know i know he's nice but um he, he was just playing around the first set ended up losing in a tiebreaker these weird points that he just was lazy on he lost that seven six second set you could see something was missing with carlos he lost that six one but the second set he came back one third set six three so he's down two sets to one in the fourth set and then it's two two in the fourth and there's they played a point i think it lasted a game it lasted 20 minutes and Medvedev finally won that, broke him, and then he's out serving for the match at 5-2. And I have been tennis matches everywhere, and I've never seen what I saw. The fans, they're boo- they're all 
40 for Carlos. They're all cheering for, for Medvedev. Medvedev, you know, he's like, stop, quiet, please, quiet, please, quiet, please. He didn't care. He served through, it was like two minutes of a final football game or a basketball game. People were screaming the whole time. He didn't care. He didn't want them to be quiet because he just kept serving and whatever. He was double faulting. Carlos was making mistakes. It was back and forth. It was, Carlos had, had break points that Medvedev had match points. And it was super exciting. Medvedev finally ended up winning that. And uh, Carlos said at the end, he goes, I wasn't mature. And I think what he meant by that was, I think that over, he was overlooking Medvedev. He didn't come in with a plan, was a little overconfident. And Medvedev, who I, I think at Wimbledon, his serve is good. I think he's been, I, I watch him at this U.S. Open and I watch the surface. His serve is almost unreturnable here. And I knew he was a big favorite. And you saw what he did joke of a couple of years ago. So again, that sets up the final for that we saw, uh, you know, on Sunday. Well, first, let's talk about the, the women's final because you kind of predicted this a, cu- a couple of weeks ago. Like, man, Coco Goff's coming into form. Like, this, this could be her year. This could be her breakout. And here she is, champ of the U.S. Open. I went to, I was in D.C. three weeks ago. I saw her win against uh, uh, Maria Sakri from Greece. I saw her upset Sakri in the finals of that, of the, of the D.C. Open for her first Masters 500 title. So I saw, I saw four of her matches this tournament, two of her doubles matches. I saw how well she was playing and battling through these three sets. And in that first set against Sabalinka, she's down 6-2. She's playing terribly. But boy, did she turn it on. And you know what? It was almost like a fighter because Sabalinka just plays with so much energy and throwing and hitting it so hard all the time. And at first, it was like Coco was just then getting to everything. She just would not, she was like someone back there that she plays like that too, but she was like, I got to play defensive. I got to get to every shot. And then finally when Sabalenka, she made Sabalenka hit that extra shot, extra shot, and then she started missing the shots. And then in the final third set, then she started using her power and it was like, you know, a fighter, like a rope-a-dope sort of like staying in there, hanging in there, not going, and then the third set, knocking her out. So huge win for Coco. I wish, you know, I wish I was in the, the seats that were like, I, I usually sat behind the players because she ran up and I, but Sean and Benjamin's it was nice to get great pictures of for me because he was in my seat actually. Um, but it was great. It was so uh, I, everything about this was just amazing with her family and her faith. And Coco's of course got down from Del Rey uh, and just the growth of her game. And she's just a she's a great person, just amazing. I liked everything about it. Huge win. And uh, I think this is the first of many. There's been a lot of this has been like the last eight years been seven different champions. But if you look at Coco and how well she's grounded with her coaching and everything and her family, I expect. Uh, you know, many, many majors. I'm not predicting Serena 20 some majors, but I do think she's someone who could easily win double digit makers, majors, considering she's a 119 now. I mean, she's only 19 years old. And let's go to the men's final, Ira. And this one was a little anticlimactic, I guess, compared to what we saw, you know, prior in the week. Well, I, the first set, Djokovic came out. Remember, this is a revenge match. He had lost two years ago. He was trying for the Grand Slam. Medvedev beat him in straight sets. This was a, so the first set, he looked great, up 6-3. The second set lasted a hundred, an hour and 45 minutes. Medvedev had a set point. It was like you're watching the set. Djokovic is like, at one point, he almost collapsed on the court. He put his hand down like where, where the towels were, and he couldn't even stand up straight. They had rallies of 35, 36 points. This is something where I think if Medvedev played almost any player in the world, and I'm concluding Nadal, Federer, anyone, I think he would have won that set. I think Djokovic, only the will of Djokovic, who would stood in there for you know just for 40, I mean, they were pounding the ball, 40 strokes, playing smart, goes in and wins it in a tiebreaker. But it was just one of those sets that will go down as like one of the greatest sets I've ever seen play. And I think after that, Medvedev was just exhausted and then just sort of gave up in the third set, 6-3. But it was really one of that, that second set was amazing. And Djokovic now has 24 majors 
years, the dollar is 22. So he's advancing more. This is sort of revenge over two years ago. He was defaulted from the U.S. Open because he hit somebody, a linesman with the ball when he hit it back to the backstop. He was not allowed to play last year because of COVID. He didn't get his vaccination. So when they lose the bed the one year. So this is sort of redemption and revenge or everyone to say it about for Djokovic. And he was you know, ecstatic for his victory. His kids are getting older. So he keeps saying how it's important for him to win in front of his children. They can appreciate his match. But it was so exciting to be there. And the whole week, it was a, a crowning, you know, great moment, I think, for in terms of watching this. It was a, it, the way that Medvedev played. And they, you could see they get along after the match. And then I did like the tribute that Djokovic said to Kobe because he had this 24 and that's Kobe's number 24. And I did not realize the relationship that they had talked all the time a few years ago. Medvedev, I mean, Djokovic was injured and was sort of like his career might have been over. And he said that Kobe would call him almost daily and then give him pep talks and encourage him. And that and they had this special bond. So he, he had a shirt made up for Kobe and he was thinking about Kobe the whole time. And, and definitely the Mamba mentality to fight through that second set. So it was really, it was really like a one minute touching little statement that he said in honor of Kobe Bryant. Ira on sports, Drew Oldie's channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Got about three minutes till we bring on Michael Lombardi. Talk a little college football here, Ira. Um, before we get into Texas and Alabama, the, the big game of the week, a lot of just easy wins kind of at the top for some of the bigger programs. Right. Georgia, Michigan, Florida State, Ohio State, Penn State, USC, Washington, Tennessee. I mean, they don't play anybody. I mean, it's like Penn State played Delaware. So it was, it was really a weird week, but there's only a couple of really big games. But those guys, but eventually you seem to have to play somebody at some point in the season. So let's talk about Texas and Bama. And a lot of my, I have a lot of friends that are Bama fans. And for the first time in years, they're, they're showing a little humility. And they're all thinking, like, this is going to be a down, down season by Alabama standards. Still playing a ranked team here in Texas, playing Quinn Ewers, who is looking like he's going to be an NFL quarterback, but just not a good performance from Alabama. Congrats to Texas. Oh, no. It was just a terrible game for them. I mean, at one point in the game, uh, they uh, it was about Bill Jalen Monroe, Milrow, their quarterback, just did not get there. They, they took the lead and then Texas uh, offense just ran up and down the field, scored three touchdowns in a space of a few minutes. And uh, Milrow was only through two interceptions that were terrible. Um, they, I think everything fell apart. For their defense was terrible. Their offense was terrible. They lose at home, which they never do 34, 24. And even the game day was there. And if you look at the game day early in the morning, you're, you know, usually see zillions of fans. Look, they had a few hundred fans there. They weren't even excited about this. So this is a bad loss. I mean, see for, for Alabama, at home, and and he also Sarkeesian was an assistant under under uh, Nick Saban. So Saban now Curry Smart's beating him, and now now Sarkeesian's beating him. So it doesn't. Yeah, the, it looks like there is definitely problems. I mean, Alabama's had all these NFL quarterbacks the last it seems like six seven years. Jalen Monroe is not an NFL quarterback, but I would expect a quarterback change maybe up next week. Yeah, they don't have much else in the stable besides you know freshmen. So it, it's tough decisions for for uh, Saban in Alabama. Really good time to be a, a Florida college football fan, though. Um, you know, you've got FSU looking like they could be a national uh, national title contender, and Miami now l- rebounding after what was you know pretty um, pretty disappointing year last year, looking great beating Texas A and M. Yeah, you've got to give the, the Hurricanes credit. They go down. Remember last year they lost tech to Texas A and M seventeen nine. They go down ten nothing in the game on two block punts. It looks like oh same old same old whatever. The Tyler Van Dyke, wow. 400 yards, five touchdowns. They were up 38, three, 33 going the fourth, and then you know took over. So it was it would score 10 more points. I, big win. I mean that was. I mean you're concerned about their defense, but boy their offense was rolling and Tyler Van Dyke a quarterback. So really big. I mean after what, that last year they only could score nine points the whole game. Now they score 48. Quite a turnaround. We don't have time to run through the rest of these games. I don't know if there's anything you do want to talk about, but. The Pac-12. This is kind of an interesting situation where they basically don't exist anymore. 
However, they're playing really well. Well, I, just to real quickly say, uh, Prime, uh, Coach Prime, uh, Deion Sanders at Colorado, they win 36-14. People forget Colorado still in the back 12. Shador San- Sanders, his son, threw for another 40 yards, two touchdowns. In two weeks, one of the biggest games you can imagine is coming up when, uh, then, when Oregon and then USC, USC I mean, uh, is going to play at Colorado. Uh, but Utah won over Baylor. Uh, they have this great win. Wisconsin lost to Washington State, and Oregon beat Texas Tech. So all big wins across for the Pac-12 teams, even though there is no Pac-12 conference uh, starting next year. Let's go to Mike Lombardi. It's Iron Sports. Okay, this is Iron Sports. We're pleased to have Mike Lombardi, uh, Pro Personnel Director and General Manager of a number of teams, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Oakland, Denver, New England, um, among many positions. Uh, and he has a book out called Football Done Right, one of the best new football books I've ever read. Uh, Mike, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. Thank you, Ira. I appreciate that. Very kind of you to say. So we're here on the anniversary of 9-11 and write a book about football and certainly you can maybe talk about a minute here about what football did during 9-11 or after 9-11 to bring the country together. Yeah, it was, you know, I can still remember the moment that it, we all saw it happen. We had just uh, won the opening game, big win in Kansas City and came back. And that morning, you know, I'm in my office and you see these towers on fire and you just don't know what to expect. And my initial reaction was we won't play football this weekend. And uh, we didn't. And I think the league learned from the Kennedy assassination in 63, that when things happen tragically to our country, we have to take a step back away from the sport we love and move on to something different. And, uh, you know, the sidelines of that year, were probably the most emotional sidelines to see young kids, their mothers who have lost lives in those towers and the rescuers who's, who were brave enough to go in those towers uh, to try to help people it was heartbreaking. It's still emotional when you think about it. When I walk on the boardwalk here at Ocean City, a lot of the, 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 uh, the schools, the steps, the, the chairs on the boardwalk uh, are dedicated to a lot of the people from 9-11. Talking about Ocean City, New Jersey, um, I grew, I, parents took me there as vacationing, and we used to stay at the Portacall Hotel, and one of my first memories was, I think it was four or five, I got separated from my parents, lost totally on the boardwalk, and the security officer found me, and he put me, it was like in, late in the summer, he put me in, the port, in his room or whatever, and I was sitting in front of a black and white TV watching an NFL preseason game, <laughs> and my parents found me, I'm like, weren't you scared? I go, no, I just want to be watching football, this is great, I'm watching football games, so it's sort of a linkage between Ocean City, your hometown, and yeah. uh, football. I love it. I had a similar experience. My parents brought me to the, the Italian Festival in September up in Philadelphia on 9th Street, the street Rocky ran down. And I wanted to watch Washington play Philadelphia because I was a huge Redskin fan at the time. And, you know, I, I literally ended up in somebody's living room and they let me sit there and watch it. Football football can, can unify everybody. I mean, we all have our teams, but we all have a love of the game. I love in your book. First of all, I love lists. So your book does it that way. You've been involved with all football, and you know. So people might say, "Oh, I might rank this one," but I love the list. But you start out talking about coaches, and I think you honored a lot of coaches like Colonel Earl Blake, uh, Clark Shaughnessy, Sid Gilman, some of these innovators that that made the game we are the today, which is more, when it first came out, was sort of like a rugby style game, but actually put the innovative offensive formations. Yeah, I mean, and, and you have to credit George Hallis for this too, because. You know, he was such a dominant figure and he controlled so many people that had he said he didn't want football, he didn't want to throw it, 
I think it would have shut it down, but he was willing to be open-minded. He was willing to, to look at the game and do what was best for the game and find a way to do it. He did the same thing with the draft. I mean, the giants and, and the, and the, and the bears controlled the, the, all the free agents because they had the most money as relative. And yet when Burt Bell came to them to decide we need a draft, they were willing to accept it because it was for the good of the league. So, you know, I, I think that's really important. And the forward pass has obviously changed the game and the rules that have gone on to it have changed the game. Um, in your book, Football Done Right, you spend a, a good amount of time criticizing the Hall of Fame and the selection process, especially in coaches. You feel like that in the coaching aspect, they really are missing some of the better coaches and maybe perhaps to put some in that don't deserve so much to be in the Hall of Fame. Well, I, I don't want, you know, for the only person I think doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame is George Preston Marshall, you know, because of the, what he, the way he prohibited black players from coming into the league, I think is really an injustice to the league and the honor of that man, I think is wrong, but everybody else I say belongs in there. But what I wanted to do is get a criteria. Like I think some of the writers that vote for the hall think it's easy to win regular season games. Like, I think it's really hard. I think it's really hard. You know, I've been in the room. I've done it. I think it's hard. The ball's got to bounce your way one way and it's got to go your way another way. And if you win 200 regular season games and you're only one of nine people that have done that in your lifetime out of over 500, how do, and you're in that exclusive club and your win percentage is at 61% like Schottenheimer, how do you not get into the Hall of Fame? Like what keeps you out? Because you didn't win a, a Super Bowl? George Allen didn't win a Super Bowl. The, the contradictions, Ira, within the selection process is what I was attacking. I'm not attacking anybody's personality. I'm attacking the contradictions. And because it is so political, that's why contradictions survive. Because every, whoever can argue the loudest gets in. You know, Terrell Davis's career is too short, but he can get in. Sterling Sharp's career is too short. He can't get in. Right. And then you talk, I like when you rank the coaches. Um, Paul Brown, number one, you're one of your mentors in terms of uh, your mentor, T, of Bill Belichick. You ranked his third, Lombardi second, Vince Lombardi. Who you're not related to everyone. That's the question you, you say in your book. You're not related to Vince Lombardi. Yeah. But, um and down here in South Florida, Don Shula, number eight. And you gave some interesting stats. Dan Marino only played at 18 playoff games. And after the 85 Super Bowl, the next four years, this is Marino's time, didn't even make the playoffs. Um, it just, boy, Shula had that early success in terms of winning the two Super Bowls in the undefeated season. Maybe at eight would have been much higher if he would have just got a, one or two more Super Bowls under Marino. You know, I don't know how you, well, how about just get to the playoffs? You know, like he went four years without going to the playoffs. That's that, that, you know, like, you know, people say, well, you know, Brady carried Brady's carried Belichick his whole career. Okay. If you want to say that, but let's talk history here. You know, Marino had the greatest winningest coach of all time on his sideline. And he, and he's one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. And he only, and he went four four years without making the playoffs. So like, I, I don't think, I think it goes to the saying, we've got to take it. You've got to be able to, you've got to be able to balance it. And I guess the question I just want to say in terms of Belichick, so you have ranked him third. 
he has six titles, and you count the titles. You make sure you know people who won the titles before the Super Bowl, they're still titles. Just because it wasn't called a Super Bowl, it's still an NFL title. Lombardi with five titles in nine years, and Paul Brown. If Belichick would ever, now this, I'm saying crazy stuff with Mac Jones, would ever win another one, does he have a way to get up to two or one in your book in terms of, of, of uh, or is he really sort of just stuck behind Lombardi and Brown for the rest of I his think career? He, I think he could. I mean, somebody who's a historian thinks I should have had Lombardi won. You know, I think we would not be here today if it wasn't for Brown. Brown Brown truly is the Bill Gates of coaching. He developed the infrastructure. He developed the software. We would not have coaching as a profession without Brown. You know, and we would not have full coaches would be making 10 million, 12 million, 20 million a year if it wasn't for Paul Brown. I mean, you know, he turned it into a science. And so I and he was a great coach and he was a great developer of coaches and that's why his tree is probably the longest that has the deepest roots i mean shula which comes from the brown tree chuck Knoll really comes from the brown tree through shula but he also has sid gilman in him too because he was with sid gilman can you imagine that press box ira how about that press box chuck Knoll upstairs without davis sitting to his sitting to his right or left and on the field is sid gilman joe madro and jack faulkner that's a pretty powerful group <laughs> well, you mentioned how Paul Brown before the coaches initially were like a lot of when the NFL started was like players. They just came out yeah. and rolled the ball out. But he actually created the idea where, no, we're going to coach full time, where you're not going to go sell used cars in the offseason. You're going to be on the staff. We're going to have preparation. All those things that sort of, you're right, made it more of like the CEO that we're looking at today as opposed to just we're going to roll the ball out like, a, like it's a sandlot game. Yeah, exactly. And, and take the, and, and, and teach the game differently understand you know and the innovation of the game encourage the innovation of the game i mean look he had the rotating guards when he didn't want the quarterback to call the play yeah and then and then you move into television about in terms of the growth in terms of football and you mentioned three people which and i was shocked i did not know this i cannot believe howard cosell is not in the hall of fame considering everything he did with monday night football and the halftime highlights and everything in terms of bringing the game and then you mentioned brett musburger for the pregame show and the fact that gamblers and everybody anybody who we, who we take for granted today is by the time the pregame shows we know everything but in those days old days we didn't know anything until half an hour an hour before the game that's all we got to know and of course john madden and how he brought the game in terms of listening game as the top announcers yeah, well, I think, I think you know, everybody knows Madden, and everybody appreciates Madden impact, and, he's had, and he won 75% of his games, so he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame just for his coaching. But he could have, should have been in the Hall of Fame if he didn't coach, right? But these guys, I mean, do you realize that, that, that uh, Cosell and Musburger never won a Pete Rozelle Award? You think about that. They never won a Pete Rozelle Award for uh, the sports, for the journalist, sportscaster of the year. Look, I don't know if anybody understands the power of what Cosell was able to do for the league. These franchises are selling for $9 billion to, or worth $9 billion today. You know, in 71, when they broadcast that game on Monday Night Football in Cleveland, and he came on to introduce America to Monday Night Football, there were more bowling leagues in the country than everywhere. There were people <laughs> I saw watching. that thing. You talked about how, how Monday Night Football killed bowling leagues. <laughs> They killed bowling leagues. I mean, I don't think we understand. We don't give it enough respect. And this is what the book is. The book's not, I don't want to offend anybody. And and if you're a Hall of Fame voter, I don't want to offend you. But I, I want to bring some clarity. That's why I say it's football done right. I want to honor, like, how is Cosell? This guy had 
He had his own TV show at 1130 on Saturday night called Howard Cosell Saturday Night Live with Howard Cosell. He was bigger than life. He introduced Sinatra coming down in the garden. I mean, he, that's how big he was. Why was he that big? It wasn't because he was friends with Muhammad Ali. He was that big because of Monday Night Football. Right. And then you also mentioned in terms of Mossberger and the pregame shows. And, and I just think that aspect of the fact that how we spend so much time with fantasy and those things and, and to think back in those days. And you mentioned about how people didn't even get to know what the scores were. I mean, you couldn't even get the, <laughs> you get the papers. You had to call some like a phone number. There was a phone. Yeah. Line yeah. yeah. I, I think that's a great story about how Macy started the, the, uh, the Santa hotline and they blew up the New York phone direct uh, systems because kids around Christmas were calling Macy's to tell Santa what they wanted. And then this guy decided to take that idea and turn it into, and turn it into a, uh, a, a, a sports line. And where you called, it was 25 seconds, 25 cents a minute. And you got all the scores up to the minute. And the thing blew off. Why? Because Musburger was talking about gambling and the Jimmy, the Greek and his influence on all of it. And then the uh, second part of the book, you focus on the I mean, football done right, which I just love this book. It just came out. You can order it Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everything. It's a great – now we're in football season. It's the perfect time for to read this book. These are top 100 players. And we'll just jump right to it in terms of how – I, I put the top seven. You put Munoz, who's the best offensive tackle, at seven. Ronnie Lott, best defensive back at six. Jerry Rice at five. White at four. Reggie White at four. Jim Brown at three. Lawrence Taylor at two. And Tom Brady at one. In terms of your ranking of those one through seven, give us some of your reasoning. Well, a lot of it was positional based, right? You know, it's like, to me, I mean, you can't argue with Brady's success, his ability to to change offenses and to fit within the system and build the culture. I mean, who changed the game more than Lawrence Taylor? You you know, the blocking schemes that, you know, I mean, I can, you know, I tell this story all the time. Belichick made him a gunner in the book. And, you know, and that pissed every, that pissed off, uh, Parcells, because then the Giants made Dexter Manley a gunner, and all of a sudden now we got to block these big guys on the edge. It became a problem. <laughs> People don't realize Jim Brown was the fourth running back taken in that draft, and he was listed as a fullback. You know, and this is a two-back era. He just he was bigger, physical, better than everybody in the game. And who could block Reggie White? Like, did, is there one player that tilted the field more than Reggie White? No. You know, and I I think you know maybe I have Rice too low, but I think it's more of the receiver element to it. But who's better than Jerry? I mean, Jerry's an incredible player. And one of my personal favorites is Ronnie Lott because Ronnie Lott was truly the heart and soul of the 49ers. He's really the part of how the, how the organization was able to build itself and transcend, transcend itself. And I think ultimately, you know, he could play any position on the field. And today his physicality would still be a problem for people, even though they wouldn't let him hit as hard as he did. <laughs> And then um, some of the current, some players that people might remember. Now, Dion, who had a problem with, he said, I need my separate room for the Hall of Fame. You ranked Dion at 21. I think some people might say, whoa, why is Dion? He was the best uh, the cornerback we've ever seen. Why is he ranked 21? Should he be a little higher? Well, I mean, look, I, you know, th- we're talking about elite, elite. I had him in the elite class. You know, I had him in the complete elite class. I think I had him at 20. And so, you know, I had Randy Moss at 21. I mean, you know, I can remember walking in Al Davis's office when I was getting ready to trade for Randy Moss. And I said, now we got the best receiver ever. And he said, you know, and he gave me a lecture on why Lance Allworth was by far the best receiver that's ever going to play the game. So, you know, uh, I mean, look, 
I, who do you want? You want? Would you rather have Dion or would you rather have Roger Stahlbeck? Would you rather have Barry Sanders? How about Otter Graham? I mean, you're, you're talking about an elite category, right? It's hard. No, but I give you credit for trying to do the list. And, and some of the quarterbacks, now this is where I think a lot of people were surprised. You had now United at eight, and then you had Montana at 12, which I think people thought Joe Montana, if people consider well, Joe Montana is the best player, Brady topped him, he should be a little higher. Then you had Peyton Manning at 13, Roger Staubach at 15, which I think surprises people because then you jump from modern day players to Elway at 43, Rogers at 46, and, uh, and Farb at 55. So that was, the, I guess, I guess the question would be Staubach is so much further ahead of, of Elway, Rogers, and Farb. Well, he was just different, you know, and he was able to win. He'd had a shorter career than those guys, right? And, you know, and they didn't protect the quarterback. He got hit with so many concussions. So I think that really kind of limited him. But he was, to me, I believe he was part of a way that, that was allowed Brady to win Super Bowls. The Patriot way goes back to Roger Stallback, and I write about that in the book, too. It connects the dots. And I think he was an underappreciated great, great player. And then because he had to do he had to do service in the country. You know, he went away for four years. And then I think down here in South Florida, I think a lot of people were surprised that you have now, remember, I give the numbers, 43 LA, 46 Rogers, 55 Farb, and then 77 Marino. I guess, you know, that's the frustration of not being able to win the Super Bowl in terms of being at 77 and not being in the, in the forties at least, or even at 13 where you had Peyton Manning. You know, I, I think, I think I'm a Dan Marino fan. I love him. I probably, if he, you had asked me besides Montana, who would be the favorite quarterback uh, that I, I mean, Brady, Montana, I would, I, I would watch those two guys practice. If there was a guy that I never watched practice, I would want to, it would have to be, it would have to be Dan, but you know, you with the one Super Bowl and you're this talented, right. And he should have gotten it away more. And it goes back to how do you build a team around the guy? I, I love him. You know, and I don't, I, I hope I'm not disrespecting him when he's one of the top 100 players in the game <laughs> no. of all time, you know? So you just have to make a list and you make choices, but I have great respect for him. But the fact is he went to one Super Bowl. He went four years without making a playoffs. How do you defend that? And I know you're a historian, so it's great to have you on to talk about this one player who everyone brings up about when I talk to people with historians, Otto Graham. You had Otto Graham 17th. No one we know, no one's ever seen Otto Graham play. But talk about his greatness and why everybody considers him, you know, usually one of the top five or six quarterbacks of all time. Because he won. I mean, winning matters, right? I mean, he won. He was able to, you know, the story I tell in the book about Otto, I don't know, it, 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 about Billy, Billy DiCorvante, about he was the Michael Jordan of Chicago. This, this young high school player who played at the same time as Otto Graham was the, the star. He was the star of Chicago football. And he would draw more than 120,000 people came out to watch his final high school game, right? And Otto was playing over at the local high school, and he went to Northwestern on a basketball scholarship. And so when he went there, he was throwing the ball in the quad, and Pappy Waldorf saw him throw and made him a quarterback. And here's the guy that goes on to – you know, four-time champion, you know, three-time MVP. I mean, all decade, you know, all 10-year career, 126 games played. You know, it just his numbers were just incredible. And he won. I mean, he won championships. I mean, the guy never lost. How do you defend that? So and one player on the list um, that is not on the list, and maybe I missed it because I, I, I was marking that when I was reading, but Patrick Mahomes, I think a lot of people were saying, I know his career is early. I know he's young, but where do you see him at the end? You know, where do you see him? When's he going to break the top 100 for the other well, list? Well, 
I mean, I think he'll age, but when I wrote the book, he had only won one. And so I didn't want to get into a projection business in terms of project some other players that I think could be Hall of Famers. So I wanted to stay, leave that away. Obviously, if he continues to play at the level he's playing, along with Andy Reid, who will probably break into the top 10 coaches of all time, too, at some point, when you revisit this book, because they age well. You know, I, I think Gronk is a guy that I probably graded too low that's going to age really well as it goes forward. And, and I'm a huge Steelers fan. I've been to a zillion Steelers games all over. And I love the fact that you recognize me and Joe Green at number nine. I think he was the, you know, the rock of the whole what happened with the Steelers. And that's tremendous. And you talk about the draft, about the Swan Stallworth and going through the history of the Steelers draft. So that was great. And, and you honor Noel. But Bradshaw's not in the top 100 and he won four Super Bowls. So a lot of Steelers fans have question about that. Uh, and I have, you know, it's hard, you, you know, it's hard to ignore him, you know, and, and like he said, he called his own place. He did his own thing, you know, but the, the, you know, sometimes we're the quarterbacks are the beneficiaries of the team around them. And I'm not saying that, that Bradshaw didn't really do what he did. He was tremendous, but like if Marino would have had the Steelers defense, how many titles would he have won? Right. <laughs> right. So it's always hard. It, you know, this is not an easy thing. And, and I, I think the one player that I probably, I, in retrospect, when I look at this book, the one player I think to me uh, is Steve Van Buren. I probably needed to put him in the top 100, and I didn't. I probably feel badly about that. <laughs> That's great. Well, you're probably going to write another supplement to this. So when the paperback comes out, you can change it anything you want. But yeah. uh, Mike, Mike, I'm so ha- appreciative that you came on. Your book, Football Done Right, as I said, I read it over. I read it last week, and then just it just was a perfect lead into the season. And I love lists. So if people are into the list and the dating, and you know, there's no right or wrong answer. You just read it. So it's great. And also, I love the fact. I think people have to learn about the history of the NFL. We just turn the game on. We see the lights. We see the 50,000, 60,000 fans in the stadium but don't realize what some of these coaches and the older players that did to build the league, what it is today. Yeah, I know. And I, and I hope this book brings some of that to the front and allows people to truly understand that we're very fortunate for what the people before us did. That's a sense of belonging, but I, I think the league needs to do a better job. I think the league needs to give titles to these awards. If you're the coach of the year, you should be the ball, Paul Brown coach of the year. If you go to the combine, you should be going to the Al Davis combine. You know, you should we should honor these people from the past. And I think that's our job as someone who remembers the past to talk about that. I just had Tim Frank, who's the vice president of communications at the NBA on. And that's what if you notice with the NBA, they're doing that. They've now put every award is now named after, you know, bringing other the players, the bird and magic and stuff. So they are doing the the NBA and silver has made it a a priority to name their awards after their all time greats. Exactly what you just had suggested. Yeah, and I think that's really important. I think we have to do that. And if we don't, then you know, then it, then we're not, you know, we're not, we, we we're not creating a sense of belonging. And I think that's really important. So, all right, Mike, thanks so much for coming on. Enjoy the another the week, seventeen more weeks of football. But uh, clearly, I suggest this book, great book, and thanks again for coming on Iron Sports. Thank you so much, Ira. I really appreciate you. Great stuff there from Michael Lombardi here on Iron Sports. So, Ira, tonight, you're going to be there. Game's kicking off any minute now. It's going to be one of the best matchups we're going to see this week, I think. Bills versus Jets. How do you think this one's going to play out? I'm on the fence both sides on this game. I can't decide. But I think that Aaron Rodgers is going to seize this moment. I think that Aaron Rodgers, I think the fact that he knows he can own this town, the fact that Giants are so bad, there's no Yankees, there's no Mets. This could become Aaron Rodgers' town. It's Monday Night Football. 
I think he pulls this out. I think it's going to be a great game. But don't forget, don't sleep on Josh Allen. And if the Jets' offensive line cannot block Rodgers, they're going to lose the game, no matter how great Rodgers is. But I think it'll be a great game, but I do think Aaron Rodgers will pull this out. We are out of time. Thanks so much to Michael Lombardi. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.